We're truly honored that you're watching the program, and we do extend to you that very cordial invitation to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our Bible study is at uh, 9.30 this morning, our worship hour at 10.30, our evening worship hour is at 6 o'clock p.m., our midweek Bible study is at 7 o'clock p.m. We do hope that you'll take me up on that invitation and come and worship with us and determine for yourself what kind of a congregation Rainbow Drive is. We believe very sincerely in standing for the truths of God as they're recorded in this book, but we also have a wonderful and loving group of people that I'm certain you'll very easily relate to. So I do hope and pray that you'll take advantage of the opportunity to come and worship with us, and I hope it'll be this Lord's Day. As beginning place now for our lesson this morning, we'll preach an expository sermon from Second uh, Division of the Book of Acts. And we begin at the 37th verse. I hope you have your Bibles with you and that you'll open them up and read them with me. And then we'll comment on these verses. Now, when they were heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord God shall call. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. They continued daily with one accord the temple and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, this took place on the day of Pentecost, and the key verse in our text for this morning is the 39th verse, where Luke records for us that this promise is to you and to your children. Peter states to those people, this promise is to you and to your children, even to, as many, to those as far off and as many others the Lord God shall call. Here, Peter said, is a promise from God. Now, we all know what the word promise means. Unfortunately, uh, many of us human beings uh, don't uh, seem to think that there's any necessity in keeping promises. I've had people uh, make promises with me, covenants with me, that seemingly didn't even intend to keep when they made the promise and can't see anything wrong with making promises that people don't intend to keep. Every time that you make an agreement to meet somebody at a particular time, you've promised that person that you'll be there at that particular time. Now, if you arrive 15, 20 minutes late, you've broken that promise. In a sense, you've told that person an untruth. Now, we all understand that people can be providentially hindered. And if a person is providentially hindered, then obviously he's not responsible and God doesn't hold, doesn't count him guilty for being late when he has an appointment. But if a person is late simply through his own negligence, simply because he, of his irresponsibility, well, that he has broken a promise. And people ought to try to keep their promises. When we tell somebody that we're going to be somewhere at a certain time, we ought to be there. there to make uh, the best effort to be there. When we tell somebody that we're going to do something and we shake hands and we make an agreement, we make that covenant between us, we ought to do everything within our power to keep that promise. Because people pay so little attention to promises today, our world is headed, friends and brethren, in the wrong direction when it comes to marriage and divorce. Look at the people that are getting divorced today and seemingly think nothing of it. Some people don't even seem to think that God is displeased with them. And if he is displeased with them, that he'll quickly forgive them as soon as they say they're sorry for the divorce. But well, did you ever stop to consider 
that every time a family breaks up, promises have been broken. Some of the most sanctified promises known to mankind are made in the wedding ceremony. I promise to stand by you through good times and through bad times, through sickness and through health, through adversity and through prosperity, until death do we part. That's the promise that people make when they enter into the marriage relationship and think absolutely next to nothing of breaking that promise whenever they feel that it's time to sever that particular relationship. How sad it is, friends and brethren, that promises mean so little to people today. There was a time, I'm told, when your word was your bond. You could simply shake hands with the person and that would be it because promises meant something. Today, written contracts don't mean anything to many people. And I'm even hearing about preachers and who are signing contracts when they go to a congregation in order to ensure that they'll uh, fulfill their end of the agreement and the elders will fulfill the other end of the agreement. Now, I don't suppose there's anything intrinsically wrong with signing a contract, but there's something about it that doesn't set right with me. It seems to me that Christian people, especially preachers and elders, ought to be able to abide by their agreements without having to put, in, put it in written form, without having to make a contract. But because of the way society is going, because people pay so little attention to the promises, many people think it's absolutely necessary to have a contract, to have everything written down. Well, mankind is not better for that, friends and brethren. Society is not better for that. But despite the fact that promises mean so little to human beings, God never breaks a promise. Hebrews 6 and 18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. When God promises something, God keeps that promise. Now, what is the promise in this particular context? The promise is that all people who will repent and be baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins, they'll receive the forgiveness of their sins. The word remission and the word forgiveness mean exactly the same thing. Only difference between the two words is their spelling. As far as their meaning, they mean exactly the same. What Peter is saying on the day of Pentecost is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is from God, who cannot lie, that as we repent and are baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, we receive the complete and total forgiveness of those sins. Now, we all know that we're sinners. All of us know that we fall short of God's goodness and God's glory. Now, why is it that when we have such a simple promise from God himself, that so many people reject that promise. So many people refuse to obey the gospel of Christ. So many people refuse to do exactly as the Lord told them to do. Oh, we'll argue. All we have to do is believe and we'll argue that it's not necessary to be baptized and, and we're saved by faith alone. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 and 2, I believe it is, Apostle Paul talks about those who have believed in vain. According to what many people teach today, friends and brethren, it is impossible to believe in vain. Because they say all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're saved. Well, how then does one believe in vain? When you, when, when you believe in vain, the word vain means useless, of no avail, of no consequence whatsoever. Means, it means that it's just something that, has, that uh, doesn't do what it's supposed to do. If it's of no avail, it's just worthless, meaningless. Well, if you can believe in vain, then you can have a worthless, meaningless belief. So belief alone, in and of itself, obviously then, friends and brethren, cannot save anyone if we simply believe 1 Corinthians 15 and 2. But yet there's many, many people who teach salvation through only believe. Well, this verse doesn't teach it. This verse says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is to who? To you, to as many others as the Lord God shall call, to those who are far off. The promise is to every person on the face of this earth. Every single solitary person who has ever lived, who lives now, who whoever will live. If they simply do here as the Lord has told us to do through his inspired servant, through the Apostle Peter, through the written word of Luke, they will have their sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. They will be redeemed by our Savior. They will be forgiven of their sins. They will be as clean as snow, just as white as snow, never having those sins brought up against them again, washed away in the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross for you and for me. Now, why would anyone, friends and brethren, refuse to take advantage of that promise? Why would anyone refuse to do as God has told us to do in order to receive the forgiveness that God has promised each and every one of us? Why would any person want to remain in his sins when he or she does not have to remain in their sins? When forgiveness can be found through Jesus Christ, through our Savior, your Savior, and my Savior. Now, Peter says in the 40th verse of Acts 2, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, there, friends and brethren, is a verse of Scripture that you hear quoted very little in the religious world today and by the television evangelists, if you hear it quoted at all. I have never heard in all of my years of listening to television preachers and listening to other preachers, I have never heard a person who teaches salvation by faith alone ever quote Acts 2 and 40. Because Acts 2 and 40 just so totally contradicts their position. Peter says, you save yourselves. People today and preachers today say there is nothing you can do to save yourself. You simply throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. You simply say, I believe and accept Jesus in your heart and that's it. But Peter says, save yourself. Now, how are we to save ourselves? In the sense that we become our own saviors? Why, certainly not. If Peter would be teaching that we are to save ourselves in the sense that we become our own saviors, he'd be contradicting the inspired apostle Paul. Because Paul said in Titus 3 and 5, it is not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy he has saved you by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, if Peter is speaking in a literal sense here, telling us that we are to literally save ourselves, he would be contradicting Paul, who said that you can't save yourself, that salvation is a gift from God, and it's not by works of righteousness which we are saved. Well, then, in what sense does Peter mean to save yourself? Well, if we understand biblical terminology, I don't think we would have a problem. Anyone would have a problem with that verse. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 22, I have become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. What did Paul mean by that expression, I might save some? Did he mean that he was the Savior? Did he mean that he would literally do the saving? Why, certainly not. Paul said in Romans 7 that who's going to deliver me from this body of sin, O wretched man, that I am? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Apostle Paul recognized that he himself was a sinner. Apostle Paul recognized that he himself needed a Savior. In fact, after he obeyed the gospel, became a New Testament Christian, was redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, he constantly, throughout his lifetime, praised God for saving him. Constantly talked about Jesus Christ being his Savior. I do count all things but refuse for the knowledge of my Lord and Savior. 
Jesus Christ, he says in Philippians, the third chapter, the eighth verse. Paul was constantly praising Jesus for being a Savior. So obviously then, he didn't mean when he said in 1 Corinthians 9 and 22 that, that I might save some, that he was the literal Savior. Well, then how did Paul save people? Well, in the sense that through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, he led people to Jesus. Through his preaching, he led people to Jesus. Sometimes I'll go away for a meeting and somebody come up to me and say something to the effect, uh, I was saved under your preaching uh, 15 years ago, or you baptized me 15 years ago, or might even say, I don't know that they say it in these exact words, and you saved me 15 years ago. I don't think anybody ever says it in that exact word. But when they say, I was baptized under your preaching, or you baptized me 15 years ago, what they're saying is, in essence, uh, I was saved under your preaching. You, in a sense, saved me, helped to save me 15 years ago. Now, how? Well, because through the preaching of the gospel, through attending a meeting where I was doing the preaching or what have you, and they heard me preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and through my preaching they were led to the Lord. Who saved them in that sense? I contributed to their salvation. In that sense, they could say in a general way, you saved me. In the sense that through my preaching, they were led to Jesus Christ. When Paul says in Romans 1 and 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is the power of salvation unto all who believe, the Jew first and then the Greek. How is the gospel the power of salvation? Does this book save us? This pulp, this paper, is this what saves us? Why, certainly not. That pulp and that paper are inanimate. It has no saving power. Well, then how does the gospel save us? Well, it saves us in the sense that through the gospel, we learn about Jesus. The story of Jesus is contained in the gospels. The message of Jesus is contained in this holy and inspired book. Well, as we read the Gospels and the Gospels teach us about Jesus and they lead us to Jesus, in that sense, the Gospel saves. Not the Gospel in and of itself, not the Gospel in a literal sense, but the Gospel is used to save us in the sense that it tells us the story of Jesus Christ and we're led to Jesus. Well, now, in that sense, Peter says in Acts 2 and 40, you saved yourself. In the sense that we are free moral agents who have the right to either accept the Lord on his terms or reject him. Now, in order to accept him on his terms, we have to do something. We have to believe that he's the Son of God. We have to repent of our sins. We have to confess him before men. And we have to be baptized into him for the remission of our sins. Now, it hasn't got anything to do with saving ourselves because of our ability to live above sin or because we become our own saviors or because the water saves us or anything like that. It hasn't got a thing to do with anything like that. All it has to do with is the fact that we as free moral agents save ourselves only in the sense that we have enough faith to do as Jesus told us to do so that he can save us. Now, the person who refuses to do as Jesus told them to do, Jesus can't save that person. Jesus isn't going to save us in our disobedience. Jesus isn't going to save us in our rebellion. Jesus isn't going to save us unless we comply with his will, with his teachings. Therefore, in the sense that Peter mentions it here in Acts 2 and 40, we save ourselves by doing as the Lord told us to do so he can save us. That's the only way we save ourselves. A man who's drowning and somebody uh, dives into the water and grabs by the arm and says, put your arm around me so I can take you into the, so I can take you into shore. You put your arm around him. He's helped to save himself in the sense that he has done as his rescuer tells him to do, but it's his rescuer 
who does the saving. If he refuses to do as his rescuer tells him to do, he, he will drown. His rescuer can't save him. So the rescuer says, you do this and let me take you to shore. Let me save you. He does as the rescuer tells him to do, and he's saved by the rescuer. But he helped to save himself in the sense that he obeyed his rescuer. He could never save himself without his rescuer. Would have died in the water. Would have drowned in the water if it wouldn't be for his rescuer. But yet he must do as his rescuer tells him to do in order for his rescuer to save him. If he fights his rescuer, his rescuer can't save him. Well, that's the only sense, friends and brethren, that we save ourselves. And that's the only sense in which Peter is talking about saving ourselves. Peter recognizes, you recognize, and I recognize, as the Bible teaches, that Jesus is the Savior and the only Savior. But in biblical terminology, Peter says you save yourself in the sense that through your obedience unto him, when you repent, which you must do, the Lord doesn't do that for you. You have to repent. When you obey your Lord in baptism, that's what you must do. Nobody does that for you. That's something that you have to do as a free moral agent. When you do as the Lord has told you to do, when you bleed, the Lord doesn't bleed for you. That's something that you have to do. When you confess Jesus before men, Jesus doesn't confess, confess himself before men before for you. That's something that you have to do. What Peter says, as you do what the Lord has told you to do, in that sense, you save yourself only because you have done that which he who does the real saving commanded you to do. Well, now, if people would simply believe what Acts 2 and 40 teaches, all men would conclude and agree that there's something that we must do in order for Jesus to save us. We don't become our own saviors. There's nothing in this world that saves us except Jesus Christ. He's the only savior. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The angel said to Mary, thou shalt bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he, Jesus, shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1 and 21. Jesus Christ is the Savior, but he saves us in our obedience unto him. Isn't that not what the Hebrew writer says? In Hebrews 5, 8, 9, Therefore being made perfect, he, that's Jesus Christ, became the author of salvation unto all those who what? Who obey him. Well, and all you have to do is understand Acts 2 and 40 in light of what the rest of the Bible teaches, and there's no problem with it. And Peter is not teaching salvation through our own merits, through our own goodness, through our own righteousness. He's teaching salvation through our having enough faith in the Lord to do as the Lord has commanded us to do so that he can save us. Down in the 41st verse, then they that gladly receive the word. You know why so many people hear the word and never obey the message of Jesus Christ? They don't gladly receive the word, friends and brethren. They just don't gladly receive it. Those who gladly received the word in the first century obeyed the gospel, and there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people approximately on the day of Pentecost responded to heaven's first invitation of the Christian dispensation and obeyed their Lord and were added to the kingdom of our Savior. Now, I've read that upwards of 100,000 people may have heard this sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. So that means that the vast, vast majority of them still rejected the gospel of God, still rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, still rejected the promise that the Lord had made to all of them. And it's no different today. Vast, vast majority of people still reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that's the way it would be. Matthew 7 and 13, enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the path that leadeth unto eternal destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. For straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto eternal life, and few there be that find it. Now, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Continued steadfastly in whose? 
doctrine, friends and brethren. To say they continue steadfastly in some creed written by men. To say they continue steadfastly in some decision made by some hierarchy. To say they continue steadfastly in some catechism written by some human being. No. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Where is the apostles' doctrine to be found? There is only one place on the face of this earth that we can find it today, friends and brethren, and that's in this holy and inspired Bible. Now, in the first century, they had the apostles there to teach them orally. And they continued in the apostles' doctrine because the apostles, under inspiration, were teaching them exactly as God would have them to teach them. The Holy Spirit was speaking through them, and so they had the apostles' doctrine orally, and they abided by the apostles' doctrine. Now, we in the 20th century don't have the apostles with us in a literal sense. We have their word, the Bible, and that's the only place where we can find their doctrine. That's why, friends and brethren, the plea of the Church of Christ is to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. That's why the plea to plea of the Church of Christ is to have authorization for what we practice religiously from God's holy and inspired word from the Bible because that's the only place that you can find the Apostles' Doctrine. In the 43rd verse, And fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done. Now hear this, friends and brethren. By the Apostles. Acts 2 and 43 doesn't tell us that the miracles were performed by the 120 who were in that room in Jerusalem. The Bible says that miracles and signs and wonders were done by the apostles. Now, why? Because it was only the apostles who received Holy Spirit baptism on the day of Pentecost. In the seventh verse of Acts 2, the Bible says the Galileans spoke. In the 14th verse, the Bible says Peter stood with the eleven. And in the 43rd verse, these miracles, signs, and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. You know, the failure, friends and brethren, to understand that, the failure of people today to understand that it was the apostles who received Holy Spirit baptism, and the miraculous gifts were transmitted through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the failure to understand that has caused much confusion in the religious world today. Many men, many women still believe that there are people on this earth who could perform the same kind of miracles that Christ and the apostles performed when it's just not so, friends and brethren. The miracles were performed by the apostles. They were performed in order to confirm the word. Many other signs Jesus truly did in front of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and through that belief have life in his name. Apostle John in the 20th chapter of John, the 31st verse. Now, what did John say? John said the miracles that are recorded in this holy inspired volume are recorded that we might believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That's confirming the Word. The Word being preached in the first century and then accompanied with these miracles performed by the apostles. And then when the, these, the, the miracles were confirmed, written down for us in this holy inspired volume, there was no need for the miraculous gifts to exist any longer. And the miraculous gifts ceased to be with the coming of that which was perfect in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 13 and 8, Love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. When that which is perfect is to come, that which is a part shall be done away with. And all that believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. What a great love the early church had for each other, friends and brethren. What a great bond existed there. They had been bought by the blood of Jesus. They had come out of religious error. They had 
come into religious truth and they knew what it was to embrace Jesus Christ and his teachings and to be redeemed by his blood. And they had a great love for one another, a love that would motivate them to give everything they had, lay everything they had at the feet of the apostles and pass those things out as the brethren had need when an emergency existed in that area. The 46th verse, And as they continued daily with one accord of the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. This meeting right that I just concluded up in Tennessee had a really great meeting with a marvelous and wonderful congregation of the Lord's people up there. But one night we had a visitor that I just happened to talk to before the services, and I asked this gentleman where he worshipped, and he said he worshipped with a real small church uh, just outside the city limits. And the reason he worshipped with this church, he said, because uh, he and his brethren over there just didn't like all of this eating that takes place among the other brethren in the larger churches and all this kind of fellowship that they think just isn't necessary. Well, when I go for a meeting like that, I'm there to preach the gospel, so I try as best I can to avoid any confrontations. I don't believe that they uh, serve any real purpose, so I didn't get into any discussion with the gentleman. I just said, we're so proud and honored that you're here and hope and pray that we can say something to encourage you in your relationship with the Lord. But you know what you think of this verse and what that brother said? You don't want to be involved with any group of people that do all this eating and all this fellowshipping. Well, they wouldn't want to have been involved with the first century church, I'll guarantee you that. Because not only, friends and brethren, was it their custom to eat a meal together on the Lord's Day after their worship, if you'll read that in 1 Corinthians 11, that was the custom of the church in the first century. They came together, it was an all-day affair, and then they ate a meal together after the services. Not only was that, was that their custom, but it was their custom to eat together daily. To have fellowship together daily. They believed in Christian people getting together and having the kind of fellowship that Christian people should have. Reading the Bible together, eating together, doing all the things that are in harmony with Christian principles together. The first century church was a fellowshipping church. Hard for me to understand why some people can't see that. The first century church fellowship. They didn't just come together on the Lord's Day and then go home and see one another again on the next Lord's Day or Wednesday night if they happen to be among the very faithful Christians and go out to dinner with one another once or twice a year. That isn't the way it was done in the early church. The early church, they were together. They ate together. They read the Bible together. They prayed together. They did things together that all Christian people should do be doing and did it on an everyday basis. Not just uh, occasionally, not only every Lord's Day to eat together, but on an everyday basis. Well, I believe sincerely that that's lacking in many congregations of the Lord's Church today. And we're poor because of it. Because religion to us has become a situation where we go to church on Sunday and we go home and that's it till next week. We don't have anything to do with the brethren till next week. That's the way I lived in the denominational world for 33 years. Friends and brethren, I don't want that in the Lord's Church. I want a fellowship with my brethren. As far as I'm concerned, you can't fellowship too much just as long as you're continuing to worship God and as long as you're continuing to live your life and practice your Christianity according to the teaching of this book. Now, the 47th verse, praising God, having favor with all people and the Lord. Now, hear this, friends and brethren, added unto the church daily such as were being saved. Why is it you don't hear that preached today? Why is it you hear so many preachers today say, join the church of your choice? Where do you find that in God's holy and inspired word? Where do you find that expression? Where do you find that admonition? Where do you find anybody saying, join the church of your choice? The Bible teaches that when those people rendered obedience unto Jesus Christ, when they were baptized into Christ for the mission of their sins, when they appropriated the blood of Jesus to their lives through obedience unto him, the Lord added them unto his church. 
That's still the way the Lord does it today, him being the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still adds the obedient unto his church. Obey the gospel of Christ, friends, and the Lord will add you unto his church, and he promises you that your sins will be forgiven. Thank you so much for watching this program. May God love all of you. A name you've known for many years continues.